So good morning, church. Lee and I have been taking turns kind of going through this series, and and when we began talking about this amongst ourselves, the two of us, (laughs) it it took a different twist than, than what I think she and I both expected and, and this has come out, I think, as much in our, like our pre-service prayer in these times where we've been talking um, around this as a church from what we thought. We, uh, we began the series called Ecclesia to talk about kind of the church generally, but like any, in equipping a mission, like a, a rally call, like kind of around this whole thing of what we're doing, why we're doing it. In some ways, it's the definition of preaching to the choir. I mean, you know, it's, it's the church talking about the church. Um, but we often need that. We need to know why we do this thing. What is it that, that we're about? What are, what are those things that, that can actually connect all of us with our mission, our purpose, and those things? Um, but it, it changed. It, it pivoted on a point for me. And it was a pre-service prayer time, I don't know, maybe three, four weeks ago, um, when we began talking about freeing ourselves up from this idea of what good church is. And this idea that, that I didn't even realize how, how deeply embedded it was in, in my soul, that, that I, I judged church based on kind of strange criteria. Um, not so much by words, you know, like I would know kind of if something was good or, or, or not, but you know, like you, you kind of look for these metrics, you look for these things, and being freed from that and actually enjoying that the health and, and what the Lord is doing here um, has been a big part of this. Um, it's been a re- release for us. So I think we, we really need to rethink how we judge uh, good church. I've heard pastors joke about this, you know, how many people did you make cry today? You know, like, that, that's a good metric. How good was the service? Man, we ran out of tissues. Like, the, the whole front side, they were all just sobbing. I was, well, who else talks that way? <laughs> you know, that's really sick and twisted. Butts and seat, people talk about that. It's a little more crude, but, you know, people talk about the butts and seats metric. You know, how many people are attending your church? You talk about this with other people. Like, well, how large is your church? That's one of the first things people always ask. Um, how many people? How large? How large is your budget? You know, how much money do you have? How much are people tithing and giving and, and, and endorsing those things that you're invested in as a church? And I think, church, we know that those aren't the right answers, but I think we don't really know that those aren't the right answers. I think we still look at it with our, with our eyes, we still look at it with those expectations, and we still think that's got to be a sign of something good going on. The Lord says in Scripture, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what do we do? We try to give him sacrifice. We think if I can just get destitute enough, if I can just get low enough, if I can just grovel hard enough, if I can just make myself seem pitiful enough out of my sinful state, then, then I'll get the love from him that I need. Then I'll be empowered as I want to be. Then I'll have this authority. But the Lord has said clearly in Scripture, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He wants us to be marked by his heart that we would be in a position where we can extend love, kindness, mercy to each other. We'll be judged, the scriptures say, by our fruit. By our fruit. We, um, the media, again, this week, it, it breaks my heart because the world that we are giving to our kids is not what I want. Um, my, my daughter's going to be going to Apex Friendship High School. They had a, a threat of violence against them written on a bathroom wall. You know, and, and I, in my day, that just, it wasn't even a thing. It just, it didn't occur to, to us that, that, that there would be violence towards the most vulnerable, towards the most innocent. What mercy are we showing to those around us who need it? 
What kindness and love are we extending to those who need it? We'll be judged by our fruit. They'll recognize us by our love, church. But we judge churches based on their governance. We judge them based upon their friendships and affiliations, their mistakes, their musical choices, their seating and ambiance, the people that you sit next to. Sundays are the most segregated time in America. It is. It's the most segregated time in America. We judge churches based on all these things because, quite frankly, we have the choices. We have the choices to go where you feel comfortable. We have the choices to go where you feel well, you know, I don't know if I want to be challenged on Sundays. I have a hard job, you know, like maybe I can just go to like, you know, a, a, a concert atmosphere. Maybe I can just take the wheels off this thing and, and just, just have somebody else. I think the, the, the problem that I've seen in the professional world and the way that things are going, I work in the IT sector, is we often want to find a professional to take care of these things for us. And I get the appeal. You know, if you can just go to a place where there's a professional who can just check that religious box for you that you've done your duty, you've done your religious stuff, and now you can just say, all right, I get to move on with my life. I get the appeal. And even though we know that this is not the case, we can't help ourselves because I like this song, but not that song. Josh did that weird one again, those who trust in the Lord. Why does he have to bring that thing back? It's old. It's from the early 90s. You know, I want more people my age. We want, we want to, 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 to rally around these things that, that we enjoy. I want to do this or that. I love this ministry. I don't love that one. Russia? Why Russia? I really care about Latin American countries. I really care about Africa. You know, we want to rally around these things that get us. And I think because we have this choice, we have to be abnormally compelled to choose other over self. We have to be abnormally compelled to choose other over self. And we're in the business of not having to choose. I mean, that's what a lot of our country and our great state of, of being is about, is that we don't have to choose. You can have it all. Why choose one thing when you can have everything on the table? Why, why just go for column A when you have column A and column B at the same time? It's appealing. The thing is, we didn't plant in Holly Springs because nobody was preaching the gospel here. And I'm really glad that that's the case. We didn't start this church here because nobody else was saying the name of Jesus. That's not why we came here. We didn't come here to combat ignorance on that name. We do, we do speak the name of Jesus, but we're not the only ones. What a wonderful world we live in, where there are brothers and sisters in Christ scattered around the city who are doing the same things, who are proclaiming the name of Jesus, his truth, setting people free. But how do we, as responsible overseers, as the church governance, as those who kind of have set this thing up in, in motion, how do we decide if we're being faithful to that or not, if we're doing well or not? And how do you, as people who attend, those who enjoy these services, the things that we're doing, how do you trust that we're doing well or not? How do you have confidence in that mission and that direction? I, I judge myself by my obedience to Christ. I mean, I, I actually, I, I really worry sometimes. I, I know I'm going to stand before the judgment throne of Christ, and he's going to say, I gave you I don't know, however many years I have. What did you do with it? You had this church in Holly Springs. What did you do with that? How did you spend your influence? How did you spend your love? How did you care for those who needed it? And I have to stand before the Lord and answer for how I spent my life. Now, that's true for all of us. So I judge myself by my obedience, how faithfully and how readily I said yes or no whenever he spoke to me. I judge my relationships uh, by love, being the defining factor or not. Sometimes I have to realize that a relationship isn't God-honoring, um, and it's always because the tenant of it isn't love. 
if it's under competition, if it's under hurt feelings, if it's under the, this, this idea that, that somehow I've got to prove myself, if love is not the defining factor, these relationships are choking life out of me. I judge a, a word or a ministry by its fruitfulness, by its effectiveness on doing what they say it's going to do. The thing is, Christ's bride is the church. Christ's bride is the church. It's impossible to love him and despise his bride. You, you can't come to me and say, Josh, I really like you, but your wife, uh, <laughs> that doesn't work. And you can't say to Leah, hey, I think you're really great. Your husband is a real bore, though. Like, you know, I, I'd love to come by, but, but we we're, we're just can't do that. Because the two become one. The two become one. And I think we talk about this in such a way that it sounds mystical and weird, but we also kind of know it intrinsically, Right? You, you know that this is the way that those things work. It, it, it's a package deal. So loving Christ, loving his ways, and then this messed up thing of the church that has come through the ages and has made some terrible, atrocious mistakes, but has found its way back again and again. Can we love the church? Can we guide the church? That doesn't mean that the church gets a free pass, because if you look at the Bible at all, the letters New Testament is really written to the church, correcting atrocious behavior, calling out some of the, the worst sins, thankfully, that we don't have to contend with in, in this church. And especially in Revelation, it makes it clear, I have this against you. These things that we have done, these ways that we have forgotten who we are and what we're about. The thing is, everything in the church is multidimensional. It's not just what we see, it's also what we feel. It's not just what we feel, but it's what we know is true from Scripture. It's not just this moment, but it's how this moment that we're in comes from our history, from Christ, from what he did on the cross. And it's not just now, but it's the direction that we're going from here, the trajectory of the church, how things are actually becoming more Christ-like or less. What direction are we going in? So we look and we judge by these present circumstances. When we do that, when we look at a body, when we look at a church, when we look at a ministry, and we judge it by these present circumstances, then we're going to end up in a few camps. Unwarranted pride. Hey, we're doing pretty well. Look, we, we, we only have one, two, three, four, five, seven free seats here. This is, this is pretty good. Yeah, we can, we can puff out our chests and say, like, how good for us? Or we have an excuse for laziness. Oh, that's hard work. I'm just glad that that's over with. Now I can just rest and, 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 and be done with that for the moment. This is fine. We can have the opportunity to despair if things aren't going well. It's like, oh no. Everything that I've done, it ha it's led to this moment. We're failing, you know. It, it, we have that summer slump where people don't show up and it's like everybody's on a cruise or at the beach and, and we just worry and we look at those metrics and we think, we're failing. We're doing everything wrong. When we're tied to the now, and we don't see this whole multidimensional thing of the kingdom, where it's coming from, where it's going, what's really going on inside. When we mistake those elements, we're going to make a mistake. And that's why we need elders, youth, middle-aged, teenagers, infants, and the mature to all be working together. So how do we judge the church? I'm going to assume that most of us now are, are comfortable judging something in the kingdom of God, not by appearance, not by popularity, but by fruitfulness. However, uh, when we look at a local body, what does that actually look like? What does it look like for me whenever we see, as my own life, what I can produce is the metric. When I go to work, that's what they want to know. How much can you produce? 
What are your, your, your KPIs? Anybody know that one? Your key performance indices. You know, the, the things. What, what, how can I judge you? What are the metrics to judge your effectiveness? And, and we're being told, you need these stats. You need to know these things. You need to be able to, to prove to a bank. You need to be able to prove to those people around you that you're doing what you say that you're doing. What's my return on my investment, my ROI? How does it look? And even though we know better, we still look at that attendance, that generosity and giving, conversions, baptisms. We look at these metrics thinking that this has got to be an indication on how well a body is doing. Producing a high number of church leaders or pastors or missionaries, does that tell us that we're doing well or not? If we judge our effectiveness as a church based on people's enjoyment, though, I think we have to realize we're competing with Disney World. <laughs> you know? And they have billions of dollars to spend on people's enjoyment. They have a happiness index. They really do. They've reduced it to a science. They, they, they remove these elements. They don't want people to see bathrooms and water fountains. They don't want to see trash. They have this whole thing worked out to a science so that people's enjoyment, that this idea of happiness and the pursuit of happiness can be given this full light because that's the ultimate goal is people's enjoyment. Sorry, that's not church. We're not called together for people's enjoyment. And I think that even though we know to judge better, even though we know it's not the case, we judge the validity of something based on celebrity and common perception. Bob Dylan, you might not know, he was a member of the Vineyard for a while. He was a, actually playing with some Vineyard bands. And you say them, people are like, oh, really? Oh, that's kind of cool. You know? and, and, and this fact that there, the celebrity, somebody who made his name in music, was a part of Vineyard music, but that he was a part of a Vineyard fellowship, we know that that's not a metric of success, but yet still part of our heart turns to that and says, oh, Justin Bieber now leading worship at a Hillsong church. Do you know that? Ooh, well, really? Well, Hillsong must be cool. There must be something going on at Hillsong now where, where we should take part in that. Kanye West, he's apparently had some amazing conversion experience and is, is leading his own church you know, through all this, this worship and everything. We should go follow that. And even though we know that's not a metric, our hearts betray us. Because we think, oh, there's something cool going on over there. The cool kids like that. The cool kids are about this thing. Maybe, maybe I should check that out. Maybe I need to see what's going on there. Or if we're not in that culture, it's going to be the Billy Grahams, the John Wimbers, the N.T. Wrights, the Francis Chans, whoever. And I think our brains look for an excuse to be lazy. If somebody else has judged this thing for me, then I don't have to judge it for myself. That's really what prejudice just means. You, you prejudge something. You prejudge it saying, I don't have to worry about that now. I already know that thing. If Billy Graham gave it the seal of approval, then you know what? I can give the seal of approval to. I, I know I can follow that. Francis Chan said this, therefore, great, I can follow in that same way. And it's just a way for us to not be a discerning people, to not look at these things. If the media says this or that, if the leader says this or that, it's got to be right. I gave my daughter Ava a ride to a function. And, um, and I, I had her in, in the car with a friend. And I, I saw this happen before my eyes, and it actually kind of broke my heart. Because, you know, I'm doing the, I'm trying to be a cool dad, at least as best as I can, you know. So, you know, the, I got the third graders in the car. It's like, well, what are the cool songs now? You know, like, like tell, tell me, what, what, are, what are the dances? What are the video games? You know, all these things. And what was so sad to me was that, that I could hear how they were influencing each other's opinion. Just in subtle ways that they didn't, like they would come out and say, oh, this person's really cool, or I really like this thing. And then as soon as it was countered just a little bit, it's like, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not as cool as it used to be, you know. And they would just change to coalesce around this one common opinion so that they're not losing ground with this. 
the comfort of knowing that we're part of this thing together, that, that my opinion, yeah, it's, it's, it's moldable, it's shapeable by whatever you think. And I watched it happen, and I just thought, you know, it's something pure right there, but it affects us all. It affects us all, all the time. Celebrity culture is just that, a laziness, a laziness of discernment. The things that go along with the teaching, theology, understanding, it's often absent. The reason that these people become celebrities is rarely because of their wisdom and study. Our culture idolizes youth, idolizes youth, the hip, the cool, the young. The thing is, we need to look ahead and learn from those who have gotten further along this path than we have. And I'm not just saying that because I'm getting older. <laughs> but there is such wisdom to be found by those who have walked this road before us. Those, I, I, I think it's, it's ludicrous whenever there's a, a, a young pastor, often maybe 20, like I was, you know, doing a, a wedding or something. And then they say, ask for marital advice. They haven't been through five years of marriage yet. How, what, what do they know, you know? Or when somebody without kids gives, gives advice to, to, to parents with this. You need somebody who's walked through this. And there's this, this note of humility on them. It's like, you know what? I can tell you my story. You know, I can tell you what, what got me through this. I can tell you about the hard times I had. We learn from those who've walked ahead of us. What a beautiful expression of church that's not idolizing youth, but that where we actually have all of the ages that we are in giving their gifts together so that our children are blessed by the elders that they're encouraged along their path in such a way that we know that they can be long-lived Christians seeing this thing out. A trendy, cool church isn't worth much to the kingdom of God if it only teaches people to show up on Sundays and sit down. And also, a boring, drab, small church isn't worth much to the kingdom if it leaves children with the concept that God is old and dusty and irrelevant. Those metrics just don't make any sense in the kingdom of God. So what do we look at? How does God judge things? He doesn't look on the outside, but on the heart. I was reminded this week about God who had Gideon's army. He called Gideon's army together. 22,000 people showed up. And God said, nah, that's too big. 22,000 people, you could win this war and say that you were the best general of all time. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. From 22,000 down to 300 men. I, I, I did the math. That's 1.36% of what he had. Imagine that. Almost 99% just struck away so that God could say, it's not about that metric. You look at that metric, Gideon, that's not the metric. It's the fact that God is with you. That's the thing that matters. It's like the few seeds that come out of the parable of the sower, which we're going to read here in a minute, and the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. The tree was cut down. Do you realize that? Why was, why was this so amazing that, that Christ came out of the stump of Jesse? Because the tree was cut down. It looked dead, but life came out of that. So how do we do this? It's not just a matter of perspective because we become like what we worship. If this matters because of the metrics that we look at, we're going to try to make those things happen. If we only focus on getting people in these seats, then all we might have is just like the coolest gathering that we possibly could have. You know, then we might just bring in more lights and smoke, whatever. It's, what's going to get people in here? If we only look at trying to get people to give financially, then we start campaigns. We get the big thermometer on, you know, whatever it's going to be. We, we just got to get people to give. What are the metrics that we need to look at? How do we do this thing? We become like what we worship. We gravitate towards those things which we focus on. 
Kingdom fruitfulness grows to completion. It doesn't burn out. It doesn't waste this life. It doesn't move on. What he begins, he finishes, and will we? Have we counted the cost? If you've got your Bible, you can open with me to the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 23. It says this, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some, some fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the sun was shallow. soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. He will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For the people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. To hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the weed sown among the path. The one who has received the seed that fell in rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. Since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Leah had a really powerful take on this parable uh, that I think about, is that we, we hear this and often we interpret it individually. We think about the soil of my own life, the circumstances of my own life, the things that, that make me go this way or that way, the, the ways that, that I've blocked the word of God or what I haven't. But what she said, has said is how powerful to understand this in the context of community. How powerful to look at this in the context of a church. And to see that, that when the word of God comes, do we have rocks in here? Is the enemy coming at us? Are there thistles and thorns, you know, in this community? Things that we need to be mindful of as a group. The thing that's powerful about this parable to me, it's a story of failure and success. Yeah, I think that, that we often wonder that this kingdom come now idea that when God's word comes, man, it's, it, it's all going to happen. 
God's word is so powerful. You hear this. How could you not be convicted? How can you not turn from your sins? How could it not work? But this points out the reality of what we see around us. These metrics that the Lord is talking about, he understands and even expects and even teaches us that there's going to be people who hear this word and they say yes and amen and then turn back to their sins. There's going to be people who are, are so choked out by this love of wealth that the things that they've been given by, the, by God himself, his word, won't be able to do its effective work. The love of wealth will choke out that word. These things that we look for, then what is the metric? The metric, he says, is this crop, this increase, the fruitfulness that it comes, that something happens, that things are changed, that when you were given, more came as a result of it. It's a story of failure and, failure and success. It's a story of God's economy, a story of life finding its way through problems. We can't hear fruit, though, church, and think success or even nice and pleasant. When I was going through this, this sermon, uh, I was thinking about calling it sustainable Christianity or, or how to judge the church, but really it's fruitful longevity. Fruitful longevity. How to go with this thing through all these problems and have a fruitful, long life. That you're not a shooting star. You know, we know that the sun gives us life. We know that the sun is this powerful thing that, that warms our planet, that, that just gives us life itself, that allows things to grow, that allows us to see. And we don't look at it. Well, we can't look at it. But you know what I mean. We, we don't think about it day to day. But you go out at nighttime and you see a shooting star. And everybody goes, ooh, wow. And it's gone like that. Church, we are still wowed by shooting stars. We're still wowed by shooting stars. We still look at the kingdom of God with those metrics of, of wanting to be wowed, of wanting to have the, this flash-in-the-pan effect and say, well, that was great. Now on with my life. <laughs> now on to the things that matter. Now back to wealth. Now, now, now back to these concerns that have been weighing on me for a while. I want to put those shoulder pads, Pam, so I'm back on. I want to make sure that I can shoulder this weight and do my thing so I can get through this. You probably know about the Honeycrisp apple. You all, you all know about this one? Uh, you might not know that it almost didn't make it. The apple was, was first called Minnesota MN1711. For some reason, that, that name didn't test well. Um, that was at the Horticultural Science Department at the University of Minnesota. A guy came by. He was sampling all these trees, the, the fruit that was growing, and he, he tried the honey cursive apple, apple, and he said, nah, and he, he rejected it. And so this tree had been growing for 30 years, 30 years, they tried the Honeycrisp apple and said, that's not going to make it. It's not a good apple. So they slayed it. Another guy came behind him. Uh, I think I have his name here. Um, Bedford, uh, David Bedford, came by. He sampled it and goes, ah, I'm going to give it one more year. So he removed the guy who, who dismissed it. He said, I'm going to give it one more year. 31 years afterwards, they said, whoa, <laughs> there's something here. It's now the, the, the best-selling apple in the world. People are saying how it's revitalized the apple industry, which, you know, who knew that this was what was going on? It was, it, who knew that it was threatened? Uh, he said, I didn't know enough to, about it to say it was the best thing since sliced bread, but I tasted and thought, this isn't normal. This is better than normal. It took 31 years to develop it. The first crosses were made in 1960, but they didn't release the tree until 1991. And even now, it takes a Honeycrisp apple tree eight years to produce fruit. Eight years to produce fruit. I already said this. I'm called to obey, not to produce. But that seems counter to this idea of fruitfulness. If I'm called to obey, 
then what is it? I need to produce though, right? We, we're, we're talking about we have to have this crop come. We have to make something happen with this. Wait and see what comes. I'm called to obey. To my master will I stand and fall, not to the impressions of man. Second Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. What, what has depended on me, I've done my part. <laughs> I've done the things that I can with my two hands. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, Paul says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So I think that the question of what do we do with our own two hands, church? How, do we, how are we faithful to our mission and our purpose? What is our space as the Vineyard Church of Holly Springs? And the, the thing is, it's you, church, for the most part, you in this room. Your life, your growth, your gifting, your kingdom service and activity. But in, in terms of our, our mission, I hope you agree that we invade the secular space with the sacred. We invade the secular space with the sacred. I, I don't actually believe in that divide. I, I don't think that there is a secular and a sacred space, but that's the world that we live in where, you know, you don't talk politics and religion, where, where you know, you, you don't really bring those things up in these contexts. We're talking about going to Hollyfest. We're talking about having a booth there, praying for our neighbors in that space. I was so touched whenever we had, Leah shared this the other day, uh, a woman who, who um, we know outside of church came up to the booth, doesn't believe in Christ, doesn't, isn't a Christian, doesn't care about those things, but saw our sign, will you pray for me, and came up to Leah and said, I have cancer, will you pray for me? I mean, that's a powerful opportunity. We are in this space. Let us take this space for the Lord. Let us do things in this space. Let's remind people that there is a God in heaven watching after them, a God who loves them, a Holy Spirit who has power and authority to change things, to shift things. May we as a church serve that purpose, that we bring the sacred to confront the secular. Through our teaching, through our prayers, through our understanding of the Holy Spirit, through our worship, we intentionally confront the pace of life, the idea of life with gospel presence. We've got to do that. And I believe that we are uniquely called and gifted to bring that about. So I want to talk about longevity. That was talking about fruitfulness. I want to talk about longevity. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We've got to make that. We, we can't just do this for a season. This can't just be a day. It can't just be a mood I was in, that time in my early teens whenever I thought I was called. It can't just be this one thing that we think once and then say, yeah, but then life moved on. It, it was nice for a season. But no. <laughs> he who endures to the end. I'm, it, we've got to remember, God will see all this to completion. Faithfulness, longevity is a hallmark of the kingdom. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower in Luke 14. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and build and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish or suppose a king's about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? 
We've got to know what we're getting into. I think often conversions happen when people just say, oh, don't you feel bad for your sin now? Wouldn't you like to not feel bad? Okay, great. Pray this prayer. And then you're like, oh, I'm a Christian now. I, you tricked me. How did, how did this happen? I, I wish our conversions, I wish that, that when people came to the kingdom of God, you say, listen, this is the long haul. You've got to commit to this for the rest of your life. And whenever the world throws wealth at you, which hopefully it will for you, you have to remember what the kingdom of God's about. Be generous. If you have $5 or $5 million, be generous. Be kind. Your love is the most important thing. We talked about being my brother's keeper. You're now responsible, church, for the, the churches in Russia and Latin America and Africa. We are responsible one to another. Our commitment is not to yourselves. In fact, we're called to die to yourselves. Do you still want to do this thing? It's not about feeling better because you've done something bad and getting forgiveness. It's about walking this thing out. It's about doing the, the long haul. What causes us to doubt, to lose faith? It's happening all around us. There's a pastor or a worship leader. It's all in the media. They leave the faith. They denounce what they said. And as soon as this happens, people are like, oh, what's happening? The church is failing. Like, like this has always happened. This has always happened. This has always happened. And Christ told it in the parable of the sower. He says, this is going to happen. There's going to be people who receive this word of God with great enthusiasm. You know, and it's a 20-year-old kid, and you give him a microphone, and you give him a web page, and then all of a sudden at 25, he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is saying that I have to die to self, and I got, you know, at least 60 years left. I, I'm not sure I want to do this for 60 years. That's a long time. And we say, oh, no, this 20-year-old kid is no longer serving. The church is failing. The church is shrinking. How do we judge these things? We need to be faithful. Christ talked about it. And I think that people fall away because of the false teaching or human efforts. We perceive and we trust circumstance above faith. But also, in that parable, if you remember, there's warfare going on. The birds want to come and pick that seed up. If, we, if we're blind to this, if we're ignorant of this, if we act like it doesn't happen, woe to us. Woe to us. Does this mean that whatever we do, we're going to continue doing this until we die? <laughs> There's a Calvin and Hobbes that, that I have here. He's at the bus stop. He goes, here I am waiting for the bus, 11 more years of school to go, then college, then maybe graduate school, and then I work until I die. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you, Calvin. You know, and, and the thing is, this is often the perspective that I think we bring into life when we look at these metrics. When we think that we live to work, when we think that I'm valued because of what I produce, when we think that the, the mark that I make on this world is only on what I can build with my own two hands, this is kind of the metric for your life. Yay! <laughs> but that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom of God. It's not. We don't do what we're doing until we die. We're faithful to the orders we've been given until we're given new ones. We love the context that we're in. We listen. We serve. We figure this thing out. Fruitful longevity matters. We obey, we obey until the next thing. It's not just one of these things. It's not just being fruitful or going the distance. It's not just trying to soldier forth and get through this thing until, you know, something else happens. I just got to do this thing one more time, one more year, then I can retire. I'm just working to get to that point. 1 Corinthians 9, 
Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but, in, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We want to run this race as if to win it. We want to do a good job with these things. We want to be faithful for the long haul, knowing that there's something good at the end. It's not getting through. It's not keeping the lights on. The purpose of this church isn't to have a building. <laughs> the purpose of this church isn't to have seats here to, to, to fill up. Our goal isn't to have a large church, but as large as it needs to be to be faithful to what God has called us to do, to be a fruitful church with an overcoming longevity. I actually think that wasting time can be classified as a sin. I do. A wasted life, a missed opportunity, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Think of what I could have done, to think of how I could have loved all those years, to think of what it would have been like. What if I laughed more and, and instead of just trying to keep my emotions inside? What if I said I love you more to my kids? It costs me so little, and it might have made a big difference to them. What if I actually cared about those friends? What if I took that trip? What if I did those things? This full life, because as much as I'm talking about fruitfulness, part of us still thinks that this means produce. As much as I'm talking about fruitful longevity, we still hear in the back of our minds, I have to make something happen. I still, I still have to control this crop. I have to make this crop happen. I have to share the, I have to do these things. The gospel's got to be spoken. I have to preach. I have to heal. I got to do something. And we hear produce, produce, produce when the message of the parable of the sower is actually live, live, live. Let life grow. You do what you do. You spread the seed and the life grows. You can't make that happen. <laughs> Only God can make that happen. You just create that space. You create that opportunity. You remove the rocks if they're there. You get the thorns out of the way if they're there. You protect it from birds if you can. But life will grow. Life is a wonderful thing. And we forget that. I, I pray um, a blessing on my kids at night. And uh, I actually, I really believe in, in blessing prayers. I, I love Isaac in, in Scripture. If you read his story, when he blesses his sons, he was tricked. And, and he had a son that he loved one more than the other. And, and he, he got them confused. He was old and blind and, you know, couldn't tell the difference in a goat's, you know, hairy arm and his sons. So he, he gives his blessing to his one son, and it's this powerful blessing about his future and everything. And then he's like, oh, no, that was the wrong son. But I already used that blessing up. And we don't think that way. We think, oh, God know who I meant. <laughs> he, he knew I meant the other son. Like, uh, I, you know, but he saw that he used that blessing up. He poured himself into that son in that moment, at that time. He, he said, this is for you. He invested in that, and that was it. So I pray, I pray, pray blessing on my kids, unique blessings. And I, I pray over them. I, I bless them to have a full life. And it sounds nice. But actually, I'm convicted by it because I believe when I say I bless you to have a full life as God intends, that that has sorrow and grief and loss, but victory and healing and the richness of life. And that's what I want for them. I don't want them to think that all I need to do is just get, just get happy, just Disney World all the time, <laughs> just, just the most fun things I can do. That's not the life I want for my kids. 
Sorry. <laughs> I want them to have a full life, to walk with God through the valley of the shadow of death and to meet with him on the other side of it. I want that for them because I believe life like that is so satisfying that it's good for our soul. It's a fruitful longevity that you make it through more equipped, more ready for the kingdom of God on the other side. I went to prune some bushes in my yard and I had to Google that because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> so I'm looking up pruning rose bushes and some of you might think that that's really foolish, but I, I, you know, how far down, you know, how do you do this thing? When do you do this thing? And, and it was really funny. I didn't think about it. It says, make sure you clear out the inside of the bush for air. Like, what? Yeah, prune out the middle of the bush so that air can get to the leaves, so it can breathe. And I think about this parable of the sower. I think about what we do. I think about what Leah talked about last week about fitting the stones together, that we are living stones. And I think, church, it's because we're being fit together so that God's life can come inside of us. We're being fit together not to be an empty building. We're not being fit together as these living stones to just make a wall to look impressive to the world. We're being fit together to be the temple that God's spirit could come and dwell, that there can be life. Fruitful longevity is the life of God in you. Fruitful longevity is being faithful that we clear out the brush, we clear out the junk, and then we're saying, and God, I got nothing myself. What would you do with this? And he fills us with his presence. He fills us with his goodness, with his love, and then we're like, oh, I get it now. I get it now. It's the chimney that we talk about from time to time. A fire is a dangerous thing in a house unless you have a place for it. You clear out a space where that fire can actually go, where a fire then in a house isn't a terrifying threat, but it brings warmth and a place to gather around. You make this space so that God can come and fill it. So I want to simplify this just, just real quick here at the end, because this is a lot. Fruitful longevity, got to do this, can't think this way, can't have this metric. All these things we, we, we have to talk about. We want to be all things to all people. We want to make sure that there's seats for them. We want to make sure that we have the right events for them. We want to make sure that we, I mean, it's not like saying we're not going to do anything as, as a church. Our metrics aren't like that. We're, we're, we're this snobby little church that says no to all those cool kids. No, I love simplicity, and I find that Christ always throughout Scripture just simplifies things down. He doesn't leave them complex. So I think that the most that I can simplify this is from 1 Corinthians 3, 7. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Yes, plant. Yes, water. Yes, build a temple out of living stones, but it has to be filled. It has to have life breathed into it. It's almost like if you build it, he will come. <laughs> we know that the building can't be of human endeavor, but only of God's direction. I'm grateful for a word that Brant gave us this week, which he shared this morning. He reminded us that it was God's idea to plant this church. He called us together. God called together the Vineyard Church of Holly Springs. And if this was Leah's or, or my best idea, honestly, y'all should leave. <laughs> and I, I mean that very sincerely. I have no business... I don't want to do a church that's my idea. I don't even think you can have a church that's a man's idea. I don't think that works. 
But if we can believe and if we see and if we understand that this is God's idea, God's plan, if his life is being actually breathed into the center of this thing as we as living stones are crafted around here, well, let's walk this thing out. Let's be faithful to water, to, to, to plant, to, to remove those stones, to take the thorns out, to protect it from birds, that that life can grow and prosper. We can see that crop come as he makes it grow.